think Scottish ancestors. My guess is that the image you now have inside your head is probably something like this. <laughs> People who are somehow cathartically, fulfillingly full of themselves and of their ethnic self-image and so on. Well, in this video, I'll try to give you a kind of a different perspective, some thoughts of a different stories. Ancestors as humorous, sexual, transformational, transsexual, and particularly ancestors as others, as others. This is another little video in my series on ancestry, an issue that's uh, very important to many people, but also one that I think uh, a lot of people tend to misunderstand. Uh, Right-wingers have this idea of ancestry uh, as like this race thing and it's reduced to this pastel colored, you know, girly book imagery of their imagined, you know, uh, racial or nationalist identity. Uh, leftists, leftists of identitarian extraction have similar tendencies. They're just pasting, you know, their own brand, brands of identitarian nostalgia on the ancestors. I think these positions are all wrong in different ways. Many attracted to traditional North European religiosities, they tend to see ancestry as the image of some distant glorious past uh, that is either attractive or uh, repulsive, you know where people were all like warrior-like and honorable in a way that's comparable to, you know, these 20th century fantasy boy novels, these stories where nothing is fun and nothing is sexual and everything is just Aragorn, son of Arathorn, pretentious dreariness. Um, yeah, I suspect that this is <laughs> kind of what a lot of people think when they think ancestors. Nationalism particularly has created this pompous, actually pretty ridiculous imagery of what ancestry means to us. But how, do our, how did our ancestors themselves think of ancestors? And I believe that ancestry is likely to be much closer to the dead spirits of religions like voodoo or the encantados of Brazilian candomblé, you know, than they are to this whole awful identitarian lit litany of portentous boredom. Now, I actually hung out quite a bit with uh, exactly uh, that kind of ancestors. So uh, I'm just going to show you in this video a little bit of recordings of ancestor dead spirits, courtesy of the temples Ilea Shetafaro de Umina Ye and the Tejero Sultan das Matas in Curusu and Baixa dos Zapateros in Bahia, Brazil, where I've done some research. But um, let me just give you a little bit of of background because the identitarian essentialism that has become so prominent today across political wings didn't always castrate uh, human exchanges of spirit and ideas. So what actually happened through the 19th and 20th century um, cultural encounter was that European ancestor cults, spiritism, merged very powerfully with African ancestor cults from West and West Central Africa. And this is an incredibly intense and incredibly overlooked cultural uh, exchange that happened through the last 
perhaps 150 years or so. Uh, and, and it was before Western culture descended into this uh, very entropic identitarianism where things are not allowed to exchange. So things mixed really organically. And that is the reason that you today in Santeria, Palo Mayombe, Candomblé, Umbanda, these different Afro-diasporic religion, their notions of ancestry is very much a merge between Euro and Afro-descendant ancestor cults into this contemporary Afropean Atlantic cult of ancestors, the dead as other. Uh, because that is what the dead really are. They are other. So in Brazil, which is the place that I know the best, uh, they are transgressive and they are ethnically explosively inclusive. Um, I uh, actually interviewed a dead spirit, uh, uh, one of these kind of encantada dead spirits uh, during my research, and uh, she explained to me uh, the the spirit, uh, a Bombashira spirit, that she had origin in both Yoruba, Dahomey, Bantu Africa, Europe, Roma, Brazilian indigenous um, kind of motifs that she was uh, associated with, all encapsulated in this one spirit. Uh, who, by the way, is not necessarily only seen as a dead human person, because these things are rather fluid and transformational, so she is also an aspect of an Orisha. And there's another thing in Brazil, and that is that these different groups of ancestors, uh, they're different of them. There are Ciganas, Roma, I guess gypsies, the Spanish-like ancestors. There are uh, Caboclos, Native Americans. There are Marineros, sailors. And there are Pretos Velhos, the old slaves, i.e. enslaved Africans. Um, but the funny thing is that in the parts of Brazil where most of the people are of African descent, the caboclos, the Native Americans, they are the most common dead spirits that people uh, worship. In the part of, parts of Brazil where most people are Euro-descendant, but where Afro-Brazilian uh, religions are also really, really common, the, uh, the, the most worshipped dead spirits are the pretos velhos, the uh, dead slaves, right? <clears throat> The point is that ancestors are other. And this otherness is somewhere at the point of what the dead and the ancestors are. Now, in, in a pre-Christian Nordic worldview, you also find these idea of ancestors as other. Um, one version of this is probably totemism that I've spoken, out, spoken about quite a lot. Um, that is the idea that there is an animal ancestor but there are also other kinds of, uh, of ancestry. Norwegian kings had insisted on descending from Sami, an ethnic other. <clears throat> this kinship origin in the Sami was really important to them. They write it, they emphasize it in their sagas. There's also the idea of descending from trolls or giants. You often see folk believes that our ancestors were monstrous somehow. That's another way of being other, right? You also sometimes see uh, mythology of these ancient kinship groups that were super monstrous. An extreme example is the Volsungar. Uh, they kill their own children and make babies with their own close relatives and behave in ways that are directly monstrous from the perspective of a kinship-focused society. I think there's something about ancestors as monstrous about the Volsungar, right? Um, 
There is the idea that kings descend from gods. That's also other. Gods are also other somehow. And gods perhaps come from a different part of the world. That's also a way of othering, you could say, gods. Cool. I'm just going to say something that's a little bit difficult here. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling to learn how to communicate better in these videos so that people actually bother watching them. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> whenever I say difficult, difficult kind of scholarly kind of shit, I just hear or feel this clickety-clickety-clickety-click of people like... <clears throat> clicking over to looking at some cat who's farting or something like that. So I'm trying to, to prep you for something that's just a little bit difficult here. And that is relational worldview. Relational worldview. You know, the world held together, structured by relating rather than by distinction categories. You could also call it relational cosmology towards discontinuous or distinction-based cosmology. It is a core thing to understand when you're talking about animism. <clears throat> World held together by relating. Now, in Eurocentric modernity, capitalism, Christianity, we tend to have this box-based structure of the world, right? World held together by distinctions. And there's a weird irony to the fact that some of the most common ways of trying to bring pre-Christian Nordic religion into contemporary understanding overemphasizes distinction. There's the most there's this kind of idea of Utangard and Inangard and stuff like that. Is as close as I can almost imagine to the opposite of an actual understanding of pre-Christian cosmology. It is an extreme overfocus on this binary distinction-based way of seeing the world. So his stuff is inside boxes. For instance, instance, meaning, personhood, you know, and God is outside the world. A Christian might symbolically do reverence to something, but for most Christians, God is not embodied in a tree, is not embodied even in a crucifix, really. This is this distinction-based cosmology. Uh, and that's the one that we are the most used to. Now, in animist relational reality, Spirits and humans interact a lot. They build relations, friendships, respect, exchange, marriage, descent, sex. People don't have a religion as a box of ideas and practices that they then crawl into and then identify with. They have relations to spirits and deities, right? And that is the way that the animist world is supposed to work. Relations between gods and humans and note that in the Bible, for instance, when the sons of gods do that, the B'nai Elohim descend in Genesis, marry the daughters of man, then that pisses off God so much that he decides, hold on to something, to destroy all life. It's like the most disproportionate overreaction in history of religions. That's how God in Genesis uh, react. So there's an extreme condemnation of relational reality that's somehow there in the history of the um, Judeo-Christian religion. So, relational reality is an animist uh, way of perceiving the world towards a more box distinction based way of uh, perceiving the world. Now, the relational reality means that gods and humans are somehow closer to each other 
they aren't like hermetically sealed in distinct spheres, distinct spheres of reality. They marry each other and have babies a lot, for instance. This implies a worldview where humans have sexual relation with deities, and that can take many forms. Marriage through initiation, or uh, embodied deities behaving sexually towards humans, and so on. Actual heroes, gamas, actually, ceremonial sex is also something that sometimes happens. So what you sometimes see is that dead humans sometimes tend to become gods, because they're more fluid, you know, relation and exchange between humans and gods. And gods tend to be spoken of uh, as dead humans. Two places in the world where you do find this particular way of talking about gods and humans is... Just a moment, take a wild shot what two places in the world I'm about to shoot at you. Again, (laughs) is West Africa and pre-Christian Scandinavia. These two places have very similar forms of this sort of fluidity between gods and dead humans and humans, gods and humans, you know. Particularly between gods and kings. The Yoruba thunder god Shango was also a historic king who at some point became a god as he died. More recently, the important Haitian revolutionary Shangshak Desalinier, who was a devotee of the war god Ugu, he died and then he became a, a modality of the war god Ugu. Right? In a very comparable way, there seems to have been this interface between deities and royal ancestry lines in northern Europe. Many of these kingship lines, they have these divine ancestors, you know. And some of the narratives, you know, that cast gods as as humans uh, who are like coming and they're settling in the north uh, somehow. Uh, for instance, Snorri Sturluson, he's talking about the Aesir as Asians who are traveling into Scandinavia to settle. Now, this might reflect a Christian frame story, but... It also probably reflects a common medieval idea of deities as other. There is otherness in deities. Saint Mauritius, a medieval saint of knighthood, was a black man. You know, it's an, from the position of uh, North uh, medieval Northern Europe. This is an other, and it's natural for them to see deities as other. And I don't think this is necessarily just a frame story, Snorri's idea there. So it's, <clears throat> it, it reflects also probably this relational reality where gods are closely related to humans, a bit like when the Yoruba king Oduduwa wandered into the area later to become Yoruba land and founded the important kingdom of Ife and became a god, right? So great humans manifest their god and by doing that they're pulling the god down into this reality. And thereby, they're also lending themselves somehow to image deities, almost. You know, and you actually even see this today sometimes. The um, in India, uh, actors who have played the god Rama in important TV series of the uh, religious um, epos Ramayan were seen as avatars of Rama. The actors who played Rama in the TV series. हनुमान ये क्या तुम जैसा परमवीर इस प्रकार दुबककर बैठा है देयर आर पीपल टुडे हु इमेज द द स्काल्ड स्काल्डिक डेडी ब्रागी विद द इमेज ऑफ आइना सेल्विक द नॉर्वेजियन म्यूजिशियन टू दीस पीपल ही सीम्स टू एम्बॉडी दिस प्रिंसिपल सो मच दैट ही दैट दे यूज हिज इमेज ऑलमोस्ट 
to, to, to embody, to call the, the deity down, right? Interestingly, that particular deity probably already went through that process because the name Bragi is actually the name of a very famous historic skald. And pre-Christian Nordic Europeans don't usually call their, their children names of deities. There aren't ch children called uh, Odin or Thor. They can be called Thorstein or Odin Kar, but that's a different thing. It's a derived thing. Uh, so the fact that a god and, uh, and a human has the same name uh, and that this human, Bragi, the old, was a, one of the most important scouts, that indicates the similar kind of logic as Urudua, uh, as a um, historic person manifesting the, uh, or becoming a deity uh, somehow. And you also see this, exactly this aspect of God's sort of transferred into Catholicism through this invention of saints that seem to correspond to gods. You know, this is a rather common feature of Afro-Atlantic religions in their encounter with the, uh, with the um, uh, Christian domination. And in Northern Europe, you see a number of important deities that seem to be reinvented in saint form almost. Saint Eric <clears throat> resembles Frey. Saint Olaf resembles Thor, and I believe that Saint Knut resembles Odin. Notice how uh, this almost places the Catholic dead cult of saints as dead humans almost in continuity with a heathen scheme that was already there. If you don't think uh, religions as these identitarian boxes, but rather think relatedness, then these relations are transformed and renewed with these deities, perhaps as a strategy of, of uh, cultural resilience, right? Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that all the Scandinavian kingdoms uh, all had sacred kingships as heathens, and this institution endured uh, into Christianity, and then all these three kingdoms iconized their kinship with Catholic saints that are remarkably similar to heathen deities. In the case of uh, Denmark and Sweden, possibly also Norway, heathen deities that were particularly important to these kingship lines, right? And uh, the Nordics, I think, handle their gods in ways that are very similar to the Yoruba. They're in some sort of continuity between sacred kings and stories of ancient sacred kings, you know, and in the encounter with Christianity, this makes for this very obvious possibility, merging them to say, uh, with saints, possibly as a strategy for cultural resilience. Right. Because like their gods, these saints can be mythologized, of course, as humans who died and then became divine. Right? So yeah, this is just to make the point here of ancestors as other and this otherness as important. It's foundational to what ancestors are and it uh, probably plays an important part in another aspect that I've mentioned here also in this video, and that is ancestry as transformational, which perhaps I should make another video about. But uh, cool, thanks for listening and uh, see you around. Ben, 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 ben.